0: Welcome to Women Read Scripture. My name is Marianna Richardson.
1: And I'm Stephanie Dibb-Sorensen. And I'm Annette Marie Lantos-Tilleman Dick.
0: And Stephanie,
2: it's so wonderful having you here. Would you like to tell people a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thank you for having me. Um, I am currently studying a PhD program at BYU, and I teach part-time in the religion department, and I mostly teach living prophets. I love
0: that. It is so wonderful. And, Mm -hmm. And of course, you and I have... A connection that we've uh, did act and doctrine together. That's right. So we The Doctrine and Covenants days. We okay. loved it. <laughs> we loved it. Well, today we're going to be talking about Joseph Smith Matthew, and also Matthew 25, Mark 12 and 13, and Luke 21. And if I was to put kind of a theme around our discussion today, it would be that of the second coming. And as we've talked about this, basically at the end of the Savior's life, he is just dumping all this information onto the apostles, trying to help them understand exactly, you know, everything that's happening. And, and I love the fact that then they go back and they're kind of reflecting when they're writing. And they're, and you'll even have little comments like, Well, we really didn't understand that when he first said that, but right? Now we understand. And in terms of Matthew 1, Joseph Smith, Matthew 1, or Matthew 24 in the New Testament, I want to just give a little background of what we're talking. We we talked previously, and even when we talked about the Doctrine and Covenants, we talked about the power of the Joseph Smith translation. And the Joseph Smith translation was something that the Lord actually commanded Joseph Smith to do, but because of that commandment, a lot of our revelations, Latter-day revelations, came from that wonderful opportunity Joseph Smith had of retranslating the, the New Testament.
1: Can I say one? Of course. Thing about that? Because um, <laughs> I I was led into this wonderful rabbit hole of studying this Joseph Smith translation, and came upon a very interesting article, and I can't remember, I think maybe it was Jared Ludlow, but it was a Ludlow, which I love because it must maybe his grandfather who baptized this Israeli that I was engaged to at once in the Jordan River, but it was about the Joseph Smith translation, I appreciated that what he explained was it was not a translation in the technical idea of a biblical translation. I think it's important that we put that right out there because it's important to understand. Um, I just read an incredible book by um, Robert Alter on the art of biblical translation. I highly recommend it. It is a small, if if it's a subject of interest to you, it is worth reading. But these are translators who are studying how the original documents were written in in Hebrew Mm -hmm. or in Aramaic or in Greek. Joseph Smith did not make any pretenses that he was doing that, even though sometimes he may have looked at words. But Joseph Smith really was coming at it in the way that we talk about the canon as being inspired writings, writings inspired of God. Mm -hmm. And Joseph Smith had a particular calling as an inspired prophet. And he read seeking that inspiration to help him retranslate certain Sometimes very narrow things, you know, words, passages. Sometimes he amplified it. Sometimes he just changed a word that really helped clarify it. But Another thing difference. that I thought was interesting, and I wrote it all down and I don't know exactly where, but there are parts of the Joseph Smith translation, for example, in this Matthew 1, mm-hmm. that come from a almost a standard work of the Methodist church, a man who went through and carefully looked at these things and sought to clarify and amplify things. I think that's fabulous that Joseph was seeking in the best of books, and when he found something he said, yes, this is important, yeah. that could be part of his translation process. So I think it's important that we understand that it's one of the wonderful things about the restored gospel of Jesus Christ We are not afraid of looking deeply. We are not afraid of more information because it just helps us understand with greater clarity that process, which we know was a process that was there in the Old Testament, certainly, where many there were many scribes, there were many writers, many people who did anyway. Thank you Mary. No,
0: Mar- I think uh, and I think that's an important thing to realize especially as we look at the difference yes. between the two. When we look at Matthew 24 that's in our New Testament the King James version or other versions that you might read versus the one that we have there is an element of revelation. It's yes. not a pure translation. Yes. Instead, it's really revelatory and it also shows that it's revelatory because of some of the passages, the actual revelations that are now sections in our Doctrine and Covenants that happened because of this wonderful process. So realize, too, we're going to talk about some of those Doctrine and Covenants revelations that happened while he was also translating, and you're right, I should use air quotes when I translate, because <laughs> it was, you're you're right, it wasn't exactly that.
2: Can I just add really briefly that this is part of the definition of what a seer is, that they interpret scripture, and that does not always mean that they interpret it from one language to another. It means that through revelation, they make the meaning more clear. And so even our living prophets today as seers revisit these scriptures and teach them to us in a way that brings new light and revelation. Oh, that's wonderful. Exactly.
0: Yes. Well I'm I'm just looking at this and Matthew 1 so I'm in Matthew 1 rather than Matthew 24 in the New Testament. And I just wanted to point out a couple of differences, you know, as we look at it. I mean, the first difference is that Matthew 24 in the the New Testament the King James version is 51 verses where the one here is 55. So right there it shows us that there's more material. Mm-hmm. There's more things that are there. The other thing to realize is that the very first verse is actually the last verse of Matthew 21:39. Yes. So he's actually bringing this into this chapter and I think that's really significant because when we look at what this says, it gives us context about where the savior was in terms of this whole sermon. Because at the very beginning, he's he's basically in the temple in 39. And then he's with a whole group of people here at the beginning. Then when we get to verse 4, he is at the Mount of Olives, and he's only with his disciples. And so there's, you know, very much a kind of a change of venue, but also a change of audience. But then we have this, you know, verse 4, where basically his apostles ask him two questions— and this is another difference that happens in this Joseph Smith translation is that in the, the Matthew 24, it's kind of, you don't know where the answers are to these questions. But in this one, it is very specifically organized to help us answer those two. So the first question, if we look at verse four, says, tell us, number one, when shall these things be which thou hast said concerning the destruction of the temple and the Jews? And the second question, what is the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world or the destruction of the wicked, which is the end of the world? So the first answer, the first answer to the first question is found in verses 5 through 21. And then the answer to the second question is is found in verses 22 to 55 at the end. So understanding that organization also helps put things into context. But I want to go back to those two questions and ask you, how did those questions have to do with our own questions about the second coming? As we look at those questions, do we have those same questions today?
1: Well, I I will jump right in, with, as I want to do. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. I remember when I was young, my mother who was very interested in all sorts of things, reading a lot of um, I'd say evangelical literature probably about when the second coming was going to happen and mm-hmm. how it was going to happen and the signs and what was happening and whether it was happening now and and um, and certainly it is interesting and you know some faiths, some wonderful um, sects of Christianity, let's say the um, seventh-day Adventists and others have had, sort of many I mean the Campbellist prophetic pronouncements within their faith that said it's going to happen now here and 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 um, for some when that didn't happen they kind of fell apart some of the Adventists to their credit did not Mm -hmm. you know they understood that maybe there were some misunderstandings of signs and and they they remained faithful which I think is, is interesting and powerful but um I used to find it interesting but a little scary. Mm -hmm. And I am grateful, as I was reading Matthew 1 this time, any bit of scare somehow left, any fear of this great moment that we anticipate at some time um, just evaporated. And I was grateful because I felt that... The Joseph Smith Translation, a few pieces in there, really helped me to appreciate what is said in both the Joseph Smith Translation and in the Matthew um, 24, I think it is, Mm -hmm. um, which is that the end of the world is when evil will be removed from the world. I mean, we can look forward to that with great delight. That's pretty wonderful. (laughs) And I mean, because uh, how much evil do we see? Way, way too much. And what a wonderful thing to anticipate. I don't care how much thunder and lightning and stuff goes along with that, but I'm excited. Right. Yeah. So I, Stephanie,
2: what do you think? Yeah, I feel I feel a sense of I think the older one of the worst things about growing older is the awareness of all the bad there is in the world, oh. right? And uh, you lose you lose that childlike innocence. And I think the older I've become and the more aware I have become of things happening in the world the more i recognize the need for a savior and and so my heart like when i think about the second coming like my gut feeling is bring it on i mean oh, bring okay. jesus <laughs> back okay, yes. right that's and that is what we need and so i think this question i mean think about you know the the um disciples here are just beginning to get some glimpse of the fact that he's not going to be around yes and and as soon as they have that inclination their first question then is when will you be back, back. like they want to be with him mm-hmm. and so i think that this idea of anticipation is something that's just in our in our hearts that when when there is something that we long for and that is right and that is good we want we ask when when is it going to happen and it may not be the second coming like there are, you know there are women who want to get married or people who want to have children and they're waiting on things when is it going to happen and how will i know and all those things and here we see the same question being asked by the disciples yes. because that's what they want more than anything is to have him back with them again
0: well i also wanted to point out that the first question is very specific to the jews supposedly mm-hmm. But I also want to put, just like you were saying, that sometimes between, you know, verses 5 and 21, there are principles that we can have now. And so, you know, basically they're asking about the the destruction of the temple and the Jews, which happens more than once, you know, since the time of the Savior's, you know, as I know that you know, Annette. But I did want to point to the principle, and the principle is found in verse 11. But he that remaineth steadfast and is not overcome, the same shall be saved. And that truly is an eternal principle. And in verse 12, he talks specifically about the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, but realize that abomination of desolation is multiple time events. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, you know as that's your your grandparents Went experienced one exactly certainly.
1: You know, I mean, the Holocaust was an abomination of desolation, and they are. That's just the most famous one. It's going on in different places. It's going on in Turkey. It's going on in China. You know, the Uyghurs. Well, Marianne and I are both involved in in religious, religious freedom, freedom. Is- issues and their religious freedom issues and their ethnic con- conflicts that result in truly abomination of desolations for. All over. Vast groups of people in the most horrendous ways, you know. Yes,
0: and so the Jews were also going to be dealing with that. Actually, pretty soon. I mean, we're talking another thirty-five. I mean, in seventy-seven A.D., which was only like thirty-five, you know, years afterwards or more. I'm terrible at math, so forgive me. <laughs> oh, During that,
1: you know, it was <laughs> another quality like we share. I know.
0: I, yes. Within forty years, within forty years, there was you know this happened. But I think that we have to realize that those who were steadfast and immovable, who remembered the words of the Savior right here, where he said, you know, run to the mountains, he actually said exactly where they were to run to. He gives them a specific place. And he says, you know, um, let who is, he says, let them who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So he's saying a very specific place.
1: Marianne, I have to, I have to interrupt because it's so interesting. You're like... Of course, it did happen, you know, not too many years later. But of course, it was incredible counsel to Jews in Europe um, before the abomination of desolation there. I think of some of them. And usually it was because they were forced to, because I, I remember talking to some of my grandparents' friends who were also Holocaust survivors. And they said, we left in 41. I said, how did you have the inspiration to leave? She said, oh, we had no choice. They had come in. They were clearing us out. It was, you know, we were, we were just lucky. We were able to get out. But then there were many, many, like my own grandfather and grandmother, who, you know, they, had, they were completely embedded in that culture. They couldn't imagine leaving. And yet this would have been excellent advice for them to flee the mountains while they could yeah. and not wait until it was too late. So interesting to me. Well,
0: and isn't that kind of, the, you know, I think these are eternal principles. When the Lord tells us to flee, is it hard to flee when we need to? I mean, we have traditions. We have, you know, this is my Language. life. I can't, I can't leave
2: this. I can't leave this. Yes. But the scriptures are replete with examples of. People and individuals that the Lord has directed to leave everything behind and go. Exactly. I
1: Exactly. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. It's like a prophetic advice to us that when we see the signs, we need to be able to leave it behind and move forward if we are meant to stay here on earth, you know.
0: I want to go back to that steadfast and immovable part because, you know, it's specifically the same shall be saved. And so that's a promise from the Lord. And so I loved the quote—well, that Elder Bednar gave a fabulous talk on steadfastness, and he said, As we become more spiritually mature, increasingly steadfast and immovable, we focus upon and strive to understand the fundamental and foundational doctrines of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Disciples who are steadfast and immovable do not become fanatics or extremists, are not overzealous— And are not preoccupied with misguided gospel hobbies. So, I wanted to ask you how does that relate to kind of what we're dealing with today in terms of staying steadfast and immovable?
2: Okay, so I was just thinking from Annette's comment about like when you see the signs, you go. But then also, you don't want to be fanatic. You don't want to be, you know, like because if we're like, oh, look, there's rumors of oh, wars. Right. Let's all go, oh, no, right? No. You know, like that. It I'm doesn't going work. to Missouri. That's right? right. And so we have to look for direction from the Lord, and more specifically through His prophets.
1: We are so blessed yeah. to have that in in our church. People that we have been told we can trust in these large in this large laying out a large vision. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Well, we do have prophecies about what's gonna happen. I know, Stephanie, you were gonna talk about some of these prophecies. Yeah,
2: so as we look at the the rest of those verses, starting in about verse 22 and um, the answer to that question about what the signs and things will be, uh, as we review them, they will all feel very, very familiar, which is why we talk about, we are living in the last days, right? Because these are very, very common experiences that we both live and observe. Um, In verse 22, it says, for in those days there shall also arise false Christs and false prophets and shall sow great signs and wonders insomuch that they shall deceive the very elect who are elect according to the covenant. So we're talking about the Lord's chosen and not just the ones whom the Lord has chosen, but those whom have chosen the Lord through covenant can also be deceived um, by false prophets. And so one of the things that, that, I like to think about and I think that is important is that we're taught, President Benson taught the 14 fundamentals of following the prophet. Mm -hmm. And one of them that he said is that we should give more heed to the current prophet than to dead prophets. But one thing that I think is a more common mistake that people make today, especially among those who are covenant makers, is that we sometimes try to fashion prophets over our own, in our own imagination and that we put more faith in future prophets that we believe will do what we want, than in the living prophet. And so it's not a dead prophet, but it's not a living one. It's an imaginary one, and we can be deceived if those imaginary prophets or any other prophets mm-hmm. that contradict the the living prophet, any of those, put us in peri- in the peril of spiritual danger if it causes us to reject. Or turn away from the living prophet. That's oh, wow. so interesting.
1: Yeah. I want this was just something that I I read in this wonderful book of Elder Holland. It is really wonderful, mm-hmm. and it I just got it. I don't go shopping either, but I was at the temple and somebody needed something. I went and I saw it and I got it, and it is wonderful. So the Savior warned that in the last day, even those of the covenant, the very elect, could be deceived by the enemy of truth. And this is in Matthew, of course, 24, 24. Mm-hmm. Um, this is in the, the New Testament, KJB. If we think of this as a form of spiritual destruction, it may cast light on another latter-day prophecy. Think of the heart as the figurative center of our faith, the poetic location of our loyalties and our values. Then consider Jesus's declaration that in the last days, men's hearts shall fail them. Mm-hmm. The encouraging thing, of course, is that our Father in heaven knows all of these Latter-day dangers, these troubles of the heart and soul, and has given counsel and protections regarding them. Oh, good. that's beautiful. Because yeah. we have so many that's people, beautiful. you know, this is interesting to me since my family's gone through so much real trial and tribulation. Mm-hmm. I mean, people being wiped out one right. after another unexpectedly by, by the authorities. hmm so you know sometimes I find myself less sympathetic for people who just they're depressed or they're this or they're that It's they're sort of like my gosh we've got it so good here <laughs> we have got it so good here but I think that this is important to understand that this is a latter day phenomena right and it is a real thing yeah. and we need to be respectful of it but understand that the lord has ways to help us with all of these ways that our hearts can fail us. Yeah, I agree.
2: Uh One of the things that kind of goes along with that, I, that idea about the darkness that we feel and things like that, in verse 26, it says, for as the light of the morning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west and covereth the whole earth, so shall be also the coming of the son of man. I said that wrong, but mm-hmm. Just that one phrase about the light coming and covering the whole earth, just even that concept in itself is the most beautiful thing to me. Oh, I can't imagine. Just like dispelling of all darkness, right? A light that comes and covers everything and everyone and every creation. And I just, and I, and the, the images like that are what make me. Like bring it on, you know, oh, that's, that's, that's I know. where I, can you imagine?
1: <laughs> I mean, Stephanie, I'm so grateful to you because it's not a thought I've had before. I love new thoughts, you know, and this idea of, can you imagine the luminescence of that light mm-hmm. that will cover yeah. the whole earth that will radiate, you know, and right. I mean, it will be something so glorious. Yeah. When I when I did imagine. the topical guide study
2: about Jesus Christ and every everything about him, my personal favorite section to study was the one that was called Jesus Christ, Glory of, because as I read about like his light and his power and his glory, it, I was just overcome with how just how much he is, how intense and powerful he is, and how that is what we need and what the solution is needed for all of the problems of mankind. So then in verse 29, he says, I speak for mine elect's sake, again, referencing to those who are chosen and have chosen the Lord. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in diverse places. And again, because iniquity shall abound, the love of men shall wax cold, which is what you said, but he that shall not be overcome, the same shall be saved. And that same verse, you read that earlier too, in, right. in the earlier section. He that shall not be overcome, the same shall be saved. Mm-hmm. And I and that really struck me because in October of 2022, President Nelson's talk was overcoming the world. Right. And he said, How do you not how do you overcome the world? In other words, how do you not be overcome by the world? Yes. Yes. Right? And yes. And so here, so here the 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 savior is saying that all of these terrible things are going to happen, but those those who are not overcome will be saved, and so I went back and revisited President Nelson's words, and he said, "How then do we overcome the world?" Which I am, I am equating here with the idea of not being overcome. I love know, it. Right? I love it. Oh, <laughs> and he, and so good. And he said, "King Benjamin taught us how." He said that the natural man is an enemy to God and remains so forever unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, each time you seek for and follow the promptings of the spirit, each time you do anything good, things that the natural man would not do, you are overcoming the world. And this idea of the natural man in the context of this verse about men's hearts waxing cold That's what the natural man does. The natural man- In the face of all of this. Yes, the natural man becomes bitter and angry and lazy and selfish and all of those things. And so how do we overcome the world or not be overcome by it? It is, by, it is by resisting the natural man and doing good and following the, sa- following the Savior. And then President Nelson bore this testimony. Because the Savior, through his infinite atonement, redeemed each of us from weakness, mistakes, and sin, and because he experienced every pain, worry, and burden you have ever had, then as you truly repent and seek his help, you can rise above this present precarious world. And then he goes on to list the many, many things that we can overcome by doing that. And I just thought the fact that it was mentioned in his in the Savior's answer to both of these questions about right. when he's coming and what the signs are, the responsibility that we have to overcome the world and not be overcome by the world is being taught by our current living prophet today as well. Right. Well, and I think that's so powerful, especially
0: if we want to do more studying about the signs of the times and what's going to be happening. I would say Doctrine and Covenants reading those sections that actually came as revelation to Joseph Smith during the same time that he was having this revelatory experience while he was doing Matthew 24 Mm -hmm. is also something that we should read. And I did want to just read one verse. So when we think of, like, for instance, section 45 and section 84 and section 88, all of these were also given around that same period of time when he was doing, you know, the Joseph Smith Matthew. And I just want to kind of just do this one because it kind of goes with what we were just saying. He said, um, let him trust in me and he shall not be confounded. And a hair of his head shall not fall to the ground unnoticed. And verily I say unto you, the rest of my servants, go ye forth as your circumstances shall permit. So he puts that qualification in your several callings unto all the notable cities. And he says, going throughout all the world, basically teaching the world of this righteousness and getting away all the unrighteousness, basically saying, tell everybody, not just people in the church, but tell everybody to get rid of the natural man. I mean, that's exactly what he's saying. And set forth clearly and understandingly that if they don't, the desolation of abomination in the last days is coming. Yes. And that is what the Lord is saying. But I love that beginning, let him trust in me, and he shall not be confounded, going right back to your your comment there. But I think this idea of the desolation of abomination, the last days, it is still something in, as we read in the last half of Matthew 24, there's going to be exciting times ahead. You know, there's going to be things that, that are going to be happening that we're going to need to hold on to this promise, and the promise that we have from our living prophet today, too. Yeah. So it is interesting to me that after Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, and realize, and I say this over and over again, but it's important for us to realize that, you know, the Savior didn't talk in chapters. Instead, (laughs) chapter 24, you know, chapter 25 is with, you know, it's this same, you know, all of it discourse. And right after that, he gives basically the disciples three very interesting stories or parables. And so we have the, the parable of the talents, we have the parable of the ten virgins, and we have also the, the parable of the sheep and the goats that, that goes into another story that he puts in, in with that. And so that's the next thing we're going to be talking about, is these three wonderful stories in terms of what they have to do with our life now, but also what they have to do with us as we look forward to the second coming of the Savior. Right. So let's start with the
1: parable of the talents. I love the beginning of this just, it is so interesting, this double entendre with the word talents. You know, that is just such a interesting thing that just happens to be the case. A talent was a money d- denomination. It was the largest. It came from the Greek word talanton, And it was a large monetary measurement equal to 6,000 drachmas which is a lot. They weren't like lira in the olden days when you had hundreds of lira No, it was a lot. It was um, 6,000 drachma or denarii um, of Greek and Roman court silver coins. Um, it was, the denarius was the standard silver Roman coin that we heard about that was called a penny. Mm-hmm. And it was equal time. to a day's work. Mm-hmm. But a talent was 6,000 of those. Wow! So that was a lot of days of work. Right, and it's interesting that we now consider a talent some gift that we've been given, and I think that it's it's a good um, it's a good metaphor because whatever gift we have, it is worth a lot. Whatever that gift, it is worth six thousand days of wages, you know, and um, and it's something to be grateful for and to seek to magnify. And, and we all have different ones. Uh, I want to, I'll just quickly start with the, the Mm -hmm. verses so we can, um, know that we're on the same page for the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one, he gave five talents to another two and to another one. So we know he gave a lot to each of them at the outset. Um, and I, I love um, the, I love the, in the topical guide, it talks a little bit about talents. And in that there, in the topical guide, we have some other scriptures that are related to it. And one of them was Luke twelve forty eight I love this because it says, for unto whomsoever much is given of him, much shall be required. And to whom men have committed much of him, they will ask more it is good for us to remember that in our own lives too. Um, but I also love what Elder Holland had to say about this. I'm, we're getting a lot of Elder Holland recently. I'm not, but I, I have. But we love, we love, love, love. <laughs> how can we Elder not Holland? love Elder Holland? I know. exactly. I, and I have special love. Elder Holland says this about this wonderful verse, which was a He had a way of looking at it, which I would not have been able to quite imagine. Yes, Mm -hmm. thank you. (laughs) But I wanted to share it because it was so good. It says, we are, we always feel at very best, one talent people. And that is probably precisely the reason the Lord directed Mm -hmm. his parable of the talents to the one talent servant. You will recall that one servant had five talents, one Um, and received five more. Another had two and received two more. But then came all the rest of us, one-talent servants. In trouble, as always, running the risk of losing that little bit we have, that parable is a painful one. And we tend to sympathize very readily with the one-talent servant who says, "'Lord, I knew that thou art a hard man, and I was afraid, and went and hid thy talent in the earth.'" It almost seems unfair to think of the one-talent man. This I love this because I was like, that's how I absolutely used to think about <laughs> one-talent man. Are you kidding? Um, losing all that he has. Why not take one talent away from the five talent servant? I loved it because that was exactly how I used to think. Why not take one talent away from that five talent servant who had made so many more? And he would still have not only four, but he would have then nine at least, you know. <laughs> and um the story reads the way it does because none of us would sympathize with the five talent servant. We wouldn't even identify with the two talent one. If the Lord wants to get through to us, he will have to address us the way we see ourselves, even if it's not the way he sees us. Poor one-talent talent people, surrounded by five-talent people, fearing that the Lord is a hard man, being afraid, hiding our talents in the earth. But the real message of that parable is to go to work, to invest ourselves in our cause, and to find a return on that investment. And so he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. And he said, well done, good and faithful servant. And also he who received two talents. And the same promise could have been given to the man of one talent. I am morally certain that if he had brought kind of a return with any kind of use of the one talent he had, the Lord would have said to him exactly as he said to the five-talent man and to the two-talent man, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. I loved when I was reading in my scriptures here um, what my daughter wrote in the margin. These are actually hers because I, I travel light. And she says, Everyone has the same thing. They started out with five talents or two talents. And even though they got more, the Lord says, enter thou into my rest. I will give you much more. And so it is not that the five talent guy ends up with more talents or the two talent. No, but we are to take what we have. And, we are, and what Elder Holland is emphasizing is we all have talents, every single one of us. We may look at others and feel like, oh, I don't know if we have... I don't have much talent, but you do, and it's a question of magnifying that talent.
2: One thing, that a thought that occurred to me that I've never thought of before related to this parable while you were reading Elder Holland's words is where he says, go to work and try and do something. Yes. And I thought the Lord would probably have said, enter thou into my rest, even if he had invest the talent and lost money. Yes.
1: Uh, but that even if is a great thought. Work, even I love if, that. Yeah,
2: even even, if, yes. Even if he had failed. and Yes. And, uh, because but he tried. had tried. Yeah. And yes. There's that verse in the Doctrine and Covenants, and I can't even think of the reference, but it says, it talks about the blessings that. Will come to him who keepeth the commandments of God, and then it's my favorite comma in scriptures. It says, comma, and he who seeketh so to do. And that's the same, same idea. That the, the blessings are there for those who that is what they are trying
1: to do. And that's all the Lord asks. I I I you know, I I had before I even read it, I said this is an invitation to get up and work on magnifying whatever we've been given. And Guess what? You know, as in this parable, in the parable that we discussed last time about the workers, who some came early and they worked all through the day and they got a day's wage. And some, the master went out or the the farmer went out and found in the last hour before the day was done. And they came and worked and they also got a full day's wage. This is what he tells us, that if we work, if we do our best, the reward is going to be the same. We're all going to have glorious kingdoms added unto it.
0: I also wanted to add just two other thoughts. The first one is if you notice that when we talked about the second coming, how this also has to do with the second coming, that in terms of the um the master, it says that he comes after a long time. Mm-hmm. And for me that also kind of shows yes. that we're talking about the second coming, that you know, that the savior's not here right now. And so we are To take this upon ourselves, you know, the master wasn't watching over these servants. Instead, for a long time, they had an opportunity Mm -hmm. to either do it or not do it. And the same thing's true for us. Which exhibits some mercy. Yeah. Well, and it's giving him time (laughs) to decide if he's going to do it or not,
1: right? You know, speaking to those who might be listening who feel like it's a long time that they're doing something and it's not producing what they'd hoped. Or it's hard and it's slow I think that our lives are interesting. You know, at the early part, everything seems so long. You know, the baby's first year seems so long. Sure, The first 10 years of our marriage together seems like a big lifetime, you know, a lot of striving and things that happen. Um, But it takes a long time. And And of course, these times, relatively speaking, they don't feel so long. Once you get to be old, like I am, you know, 10 in dog years, um, it doesn't feel so long. You know, it seems like, wow, that went pretty quickly. It's amazing that I'm here at this point. Yeah. Um, but I, I love that, Mariana, that not only until the Savior comes does it seem a long time, but sometimes our lives, the time that we're working and striving, and feels like a long time. time. But take heart. I love what you said, Stephanie. The long time is a mercy, actually. And yeah. we See it as such.
0: And the other point that I wanted to say was that President Faust gave a wonderful talk about this, and he said some of us are too content with what we may already be doing, and so we don't you know, try. We miss opportunities to build up the kingdom of God because we have the passive notion that someone else will take care of it. So, so- the Lord tells us that he will give more to those who are willing— they will be magnified in their efforts. And then he goes on to say, while we are not all equal and experience aptitude and strength, we have different opportunities to employ these spiritual gifts, and we will all be accountable for the use of the gifts and the opportunities given to us. And I love that concept of we do get too content. You know, we just, we get too, too much in, you know, my little comfort zone and I don't want to take my spiritual gifts to other places or to go a little farther.
2: I have have a comment about that, but it'll transition us into the 10 virgins. Is that okay? I would love it. Okay. Love it. So what President Faust there said about feeling content with what we have, Mm -hmm. I've heard people say like, you know, when they're asked to serve or do things, they're like, they're like, oh, I'm. Uh, I've done my time, right? Oh. Like I've put it all. I've put it all in in the past, and now season. now it's time for me to rest or whatever. But I think that the danger of that is that we are not continually putting oil in our lamps, and so we may not be prepared to meet oh, the Savior.
0: I love that. And do you want to go on with? Well, the sure. Ten so so
2: the next the next parable there that the that the Lord introduces is the parable of the ten virgins, and it says. In verse in verse 2, this is in Matthew 25, and five of them were wise and five were foolish. Why were they foolish? In verse 3, they that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. One thing that I think is really interesting that caused me some pause here is this idea like they did take lamps. They just didn't take oil. So they weren't totally unprepared. They were just underprepared. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. interesting. And so, um, when when I think about think about that, it reminds me of Elder Bednar's talk called Converted Unto the Lord. And I think you have something something to share with with about the oil. At, mm-hmm. But before you share that quote, I just wanted to say that one of the things that Elder Bednar taught was that a testimony is knowing that the gospel is true. But conversion is is being true to the gospel. Oh, that. And so if I think about this, to me, that's the difference between the lamps and the oil. They took their lamp, they maybe had a testimony, but they weren't converted. They didn't take it a step further. They weren't all the way ready. Mm-hmm. So I just think that's a really interesting concept. And you had something from Elder Bednar about oil itself well, that no, goes this along is with the President Kimball. Oh, okay. This is right. President
0: Kimball. And he said the kind of oil that is needed to illuminate the way and light up the darkness is not shareable. Yeah. How can one share obedience to the principle of tithing? A mind at peace from righteous living, an accumulation of knowledge? How can one share faith or testimony? How can one share attitudes or chastity or the experience of a mission? How can one share temple privileges? Each must obtain that kind of oil for himself. Yes,
1: that is so important. I, When i reading this straight, I'm always like, those selfish other virgins that they don't, you know, should How they, give, they them give them each it? half of their oil? And then, you know, everybody would have half enough and they could at least get in. And maybe they'd it would go dark, you know, but... Nevertheless, I mean that was the way, and you know, I people used to think about it with food storage. I was like, no, if I had food storage, I would share it with my neighbors. <laughs> I'm not going to keep it all to myself, you know. Um, I I really felt like that. I felt like it was an incorrect interpretation interpretation yes. in that way. Right. What President Kimball says illuminates it enormously because we mm-hmm. we are talking about a kind of spiritual oil that is not the conversion Not found yes, Stephanie. by sitting back and enjoying our testimony right. of the truth and living whatever life but it's about getting to work yeah as it said in the, earl- in the in with our with our talents
2: and if we play on that testimony versus conversion principle and we're talking lamps versus oil or whatever i, I what you just read he says you can't share your testimony meaning you can't give it to someone else but you can share your testimony, right? Like you can share your testimony with other people, but you cannot share your conversion with other people. Like the conversion is uniquely personal to you. And so that's the oil, like it's it's yours and it's what literally fuels you and your spiritual growth and your spiritual progress. And it is personal, and it's your responsibility to to develop that. And I so I feel like that lamp versus oil thing
1: kind of il- illuminates. Ha, ha, I ha, love that it. that, <laughs> that <laughs> principle. Good one. I <laughs> love it. And the, and the key, the truth is that we have been given the keys to cold fusion. Here, we know what we need to do to increase our conversion. Because as we are converted as we read and study the scriptures as we serve with our whole hearts as we do that as we are faithful and go to church because wonderful things happen in church our lamps will be filled and it's not it's not something that is only for people who have enough money to buy or right. Right. You know. Well, as we go
2: towards the end, a little further down in the parable and starting in about verse 10, it says, while they went to buy, these are the ones that the bridegroom, the bridegroom came and they were left behind because they weren't prepared. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, they, they, uh, they that were ready went in with him to the marriage and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, and this always felt so harsh, Mm -hmm. right? But this is actually the answer to what you just said about the magic to cold fusion. What do we do to do our conversion? The Lord said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Now, the insight that came is through the Joseph Smith translation.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, exactly. Yeah.
2: I <laughs> love <Yeah>. the Joseph Smith <laughs> translation. Okay. are amazing. Yeah. yeah, so Elder Bednar said about this verse, he says, the implications of this parable for each of us are expanded by another inspired rev- revision. Importantly, the phrase, I know you not, as reported in the King James Version of the Bible, was clarified in the Joseph Smith translation to, ye know me not. Of course. And that is what the conversion is. Exactly. We know the Lord. We be, the gospel becomes part of who we are and that. we be, we have become like him. That's how we know him because we are like him, right? And so Elder Bednar continues, the phrases ye never knew me and ye know me not should cause should be a cause of deep spiritual introspection for each of us. Do we only know about the savior Or are we increasingly coming to know him? I love that. And so if we think of that in the context of knowing about the Savior, that's testimony. Knowing him, conversion. That's the oil.
0: Well, I want to share also just a a thought from President Oaks, because he spoke a lot about the ten virgins and preparing for the second coming. And he said, the ten virgins obviously represent members of Christ's church. So it's the members that he's talking to. For all were invited to the wedding feast and all knew what was required. So it it goes back to this idea. They they knew what was required to be admitted when the bridegroom came. So it was their conscious decision not to bring the oil. But only half were ready when he came. If we would do those things then, why not now? So his point here is, so they had the opportunity then. They did go afterwards to the merchants and say, oh no, I need it now. They could have done it you know, a long time before, but it goes back to this idea of, Well, my life's okay. You know, I I think my oil's enough to last me. I have a testimony. (laughs) Right. You know, I go to church. I do those things. And then he says, why not seek peace while peace can be obtained? If our lamps of preparation are drawn down, let us start immediately to replenish them. So the other point he's making is, you know, we can't just fill the oil once. You know, it's something that constantly has to be refilled, constantly has to be prepared.
1: And you know, go ahead and stuff.
2: Well, I just want, I was going to go back to the last verse that brings us back to the idea of the second coming. Did you yeah. have something you still wanted to say about the oil before we go up? The
1: one thing is that, you know, when you have a lot of oil or you love, somehow your flame is brighter. And I think we can tell when our flame it's is going dimming. Yeah. It's dimming. Yeah. And we need to then make sure we're doing the process of filling that lamp with the things that, we, that will cause it to burn bright. That is wonderful. Mm-hmm. So just a final comment, thank you for that, uh, about the
2: this parable and how it ties to the second coming, right? In verse uh, 13, the Lord says, Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. And this idea of watch therefore triggered this random memory. This is a weird connection that I made when I was thinking about it, but I don't know if you've ever seen that Mr. Rogers he when, and there were times when there were times of like um disaster or trial mm-hmm. he would comfort children by sharing what his mother had told him that when there's something tragic happening to look for the helpers Uh, And so I, when I, that's what I thought of when I thought of this verse, watch, therefore, I thought, look for the helpers that as we're waiting and the, and who the main helper is going to be the savior, Jesus Christ. That As these signs come and it's getting closer and closer and we're watching, we are watching for help from the Lord and it's going to come. We know that it comes through scripture. It comes through his prophets. It comes through inspiration from the Holy ghost. And ultimately it will come in his own person.
0: Well, and this goes directly to the the last one that he brings. And that is this idea of the the sheeps and the goats. And I just wanted to this is this is going to verse, well, if we go to verse thirty one and thirty two, he says, uh, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory." So it's kind of putting it into this specific, you know,, uh, concept of the second coming okay so the savior's come down in his glory and before him shall be gathered all nations and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats so he is the good shepherd he's you know he wants to see which one are his sheep and the goats sorry goats you know you're going to be over here away from his sheep and he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. And then from that, he goes into this other kind of a story, kind right. of showing which ones are the sheep. And which ones are the goats?
2: Right. And also, I just have to say that I had this image in my mind while you're describing this. This is a mixed metaphor, right? But the shepherd is actually dividing in half the sheep and the goats, and also the don't use your talents and the used your talents, (laughs) and also the empty lamps and the oil. I mean, that's like he's He's putting that's all that's what they all mean the same thing. And then he, and then here in these verses, um, he says, Then shall the king say unto them, and in verse 35. For I was in hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. Sick, and ye visited me. In prison, and ye came unto me. And and then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, and fed thee? Or thirsty, and gave thee drink? Then they go on to ask, When did we do all of those things? Right? Which, by the way, just as a tangent, I think there's a beautiful principle here. Where the Lord sees the good we do, even when we don't. That's a beautiful. That's a good do, do you know what I'm saying? Because Absolutely. he's like, he, here he is honoring all the good we've done. And we're like, wait, when did we do that? And he's like, I know. And then he says, um, and the king answered, verily, I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. And so here we have echoed the same sentiment that we learned from King Benjamin, right? Mm -hmm. That when we are in the service of our fellow beings, we are only in the service of our God. And so one of the ways, one of the evidences of our oil, our work, and our conversion is in the charity and love we give to others, the way that we treat other people. Like That is, be, that is, I believe it was Marvin J. Ashton who said that that is the symbol, true symbol of our discipleship is how we treat other people. And so that's an easy way for the Lord to rubric how we're doing because that is an evidence of our conversion and our oil and
1: our work. My my daughter has in the margin, I love this, she said, we should see Christ in every person we serve. Oh, yeah. And I think that that is so important in every person we serve and I and I just every person we encounter I have to say
2: that for me these verses became particularly poignant I know that I know that both of you love children in large numbers and babies but as a young mother for me that was like the greatest challenge of my life and at the end of a very long day I read these verses and those are things that every mother does for their children. Oh, definitely. They feed them, they clothe them. They visit them in prison, crib or timeout. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there are all of these things we take in their friends' friends, the strangers into our oh, home. God. And I and I felt like for me, that was a way of knowing that Jesus Christ honored what I was doing, and that he saw it as service to him, and that was an incredibly important principle for me to understand when I wasn't quite sure if what I was doing was making a difference. Oh, I love that.
1: That is so important. That, that is think, so you know, beautiful. It's, it's interesting. I think that for, maybe for people like Mariana and and me, it's a little different because we really liked being with our children and doing that. And you know, it is important because it's you know when the Savior says, "I, I I'm trying to think where, but." If you do it for just your own family, it's like doing it for yourself, you know. You have to understand it's not the same, you know, as, as really reaching out to people in need, you know, as really giving. Because our children, our families, they become part of us. Right. And so it's not the same. But I think that, Stephanie, it's very important that there are mothers for whom children feel like a, a, a terrible <laughs> difficult challenge and mm-hmm. burden and when you instead see that you are doing the savior's work in all of the menial endless things that are involved with having babies it can transform it for you
0: oh definitely you know well and our final story that we're going to be talking about is the widow and the mite and for me this is kind of an interesting end of our discussion because as we talk about preparation for the second coming, about being immovable and steadfast, the widow in the widow's might story kind of is the the archetype of what all of us should be like in terms of as we think about our preparation.
1: So, you know, I mean, these are, as we say, the synoptic gospels, which Mm -hmm. we talked about last time, and and they give us a view of together of these... um, stories and and they aren't meant as i mentioned i'll say it again don't try to correlate them don't try to get them all to mean th- be the same because we are supposed to look at them together and get new things from these different perspectives right. that are offered See. um and so um it starts out with um that he the, that the savior anyway and i'm looking at the one in mark Okay. where he warns to beware of the scribes which mm-hmm. love to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplaces who are regarded as very holy men and the chief seats in the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at the feasts. He said, beware of that. Beware of those who like to sort of show off their closeness to God with their position, their all of these things. He says, and which devour widows' houses and for a preference make long prayers, these shall receive great, greater damnation. So I think it's important to understand there are two different ways to give. And one may get you, as the Lord has said in other places, you have your reward with certain big
2: oblations,
1: oblations <laughs> yeah. that have big response and lots of praise in the world. But then Jesus sat over against the treasury mm-hmm. and beheld how the people cast money into the treasury. And many that were rich cast much in, cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. So a farthing is not a denarius, which is a full day's wage. A farthing is just a tiny fraction of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and this May the little tiny pieces of money, I don't know if you've traveled, but sometimes abroad, like in Hungary, I know there are just really flimsy little pieces of money that like one or two for it, that really aren't worth much at all, almost disposable. Yeah, almost yeah. disposable.. But, yeah. Um, and, but she came and put those disposable mm-hmm. kinds of money into um, the um, treasury. And he called unto hi- him, he called unto him his disciples. Come over, I want you to see this. So I want you to see this. And saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow has cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in Mm. all that she had, even all her living. It was all she had. But she wanted to give that into the treasury. She didn't tell herself, I love what you said, Stephanie, you know, that somebody else, they're giving enough. Sometimes you do that, you know, oh, well, they're getting a lot of money in this place. So even though maybe I feel prompted that I should give some, it's not going to make a difference, you know. But she doesn't tell herself that. She is doing it with her full energy, you know, with her full energy, as we were talking about. Um, So I think it's about giving our all, giving our all to our testimonies, to our Conversion yeah. to our to the Lord that we are not holding back. We are staying up at night to make sure we're doing what we can mm-hmm. to do what we've been asked to do. Um, and I, um, how do? And this is my question for you. How do we give our all? How do we identify what we need to give up to give our all? Um, Because we will definitely have to give up some things to give our all. Well, my thoughts with Mariana.
0: Oh, my thoughts go to the temple because this happened at the temple. And I I love going to the temple, but oftentimes when I go to the temple, I see the widow giving up her might in terms of these lovely, lovely women that I work with at the temple, many of them who are widows who spend so much of their time, I mean, all for their temple service. And, And for me, I also think of some of the covenants that we make at the temple in terms of covenanting all that we have for the Lord. And so, you know, the fact that this whole story happened at the temple for me is also extremely significant as we talk about being steadfast and immovable.
2: Yeah, the one thing that comes to mind for me is that I think the Lord is pointing out by drawing attention and drawing attention to and honoring her offering is that when we feel that we have very little to give, that we should not be ashamed. Yes. And that 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 little that little bit that we have to give, it might be it might be money, it might be a talent. That's right. And it might be um it might be our faith. Like we may have a little faith, but if we give it as an offering to the Lord, then he honors it and he does not want us to be ashamed of the little that we have to I offer. Agree. He
1: that's right. As he said, it more um um that for all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all she had, even all her living. And he, and he says that, um, it was more than all the others have cast in. So, you know, we have to understand that it's true that when we, when there is small, when you start with a smaller amount for no matter what the reasons, and you still do your best to give your all it is more because even those of us who give a lot, who try to give a lot, we still have a lot left. Yeah. We have a lot left. And some people do not have a lot left. And they still give their all. And so it, it should be a motivation to us to do more in a good way. In a good way. It's not that the Lord wants us to be exhausted or depleted. He wants us to... He wants but us to keep oil in our land. He does. Yes, he does. <laughs> exactly.
0: Well, thank you so much for this discussion today. And especially as we think about the second coming and preparing for the second coming, I have loved your comments. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you.